You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Andy Greenberg is a senior writer for Wired covering security, privacy, information, freedom, and hacker culture. Before joining Wired in 2014, he worked as a senior reporter for Forbes magazine. He's won awards, including two Gerald Loeb Awards for international reporting, a Sigma Delta Chi Award from the Society of Professional Journalists, Three Deadline Club Awards from the New York Society of Professional Journalists and the Cornelius Ryan Citation for Excellence from the Overseas Press Club. He's the author of This Machine Kills Secrets, How WikiLeakers, Hacktivists, and Cypherpunks Aim to Free the World's Information, Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War, and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers, His new book is Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. My pleasure to talk to you again. As I was reading this book, I thought that it really, in a sense, stems from two separate events that occurred almost, you know, 50 years ago. And, you know, between those two, this book became possible. The first event happened uh, back in the, uh, I guess maybe the early 70s, when uh, two journalists met a man that we now know was named Mark Felt in a garage in Washington, and he told them if they wanted to find out what was going on in the White House to uh, follow uh, the money. This sense has become a, you know, a watchword for almost every criminal invade, investigation going forward that's the idea you follow the money you're going to find out what's going on the other event that is seminal i think to this book was when, in uh, 1982 when uh william gibson uh, a canadian science fiction writer sat down on his hermes manual typewriter and wrote a book called neuromancer <laughs> this book is widely credited as being an inspiration and uh, and also a perfect prediction of what became the internet for us. Here we are in the 21st century, uh, about the time uh, William Gibson discussed, and we are looking at essentially non-fiction version of a true crime novel in the 21st century. Had I been able to beam this thing back to <laughs> when I first read... Uh, Normans, I would say, this guy is great. <laughs> but this is not fiction. This is nonfiction. You have dealt a lot with, you know, Sandworm talked about cyber war. Um, this Machine Kills Secrets talked about the WikiLeaks. Your new book talks about Bitcoin. And this is something that was not even uh, Gibson had foreseen. Uh, it's a brand new technology that was invented recently, and your discovery of Bitcoin is part of this book. Tell us how you were, why and how you are interested in Bitcoin, and, and how you found out about it, because many people today don't even really understand how it works. Well, yeah, I mean, thank you for that incredible uh, description of this as like some sort of um, financial investigation meets William Gibson. That's about as flattering as I could hope for with this book. I mean, and that is, you know, I, I when I for, to answer your question, when I came across Bitcoin, I worked at Forbes magazine and I was a, a business tech reporter and I covered this world of of cybersecurity and hacking and cryptography. You know, I mean, I um I had written, as you said, this book about WikiLeaks. It was really about the cypherpunk movement, this group of radical libertarians who thought that they could take encryption technologies and use them to empower individuals with, you know, things like WikiLeaks. And and so when I came across this thing, I actually like um, kind of stumbled across this video from a small tech event where somebody was talking about Bitcoin. And it seemed to me like this was this kind of holy grail of 
not just encrypted communications of the kind that had powered WikiLeaks and allowed people to be anonymous on the dark web and spill government secrets and things, but anonymous encrypted money. I mean, that's how it was described to me at the time. Um, and this, you know, I guess having that like follow the money idea in my head that like that is the the keystone to every investigation that seemed to me like immediately this was going to unlock a whole world of financial crimes like money laundering terrorist financing online black market drug deals and all of that you know came to pass in the years that followed the dark web truly was monetized by cryptocurrency but then this kind of like even more surprising thing happened over the next decade which is that you know it turned out surprise that cryptocurrency that bitcoin is not untraceable or anonymous it is the opposite of those things you know to everyone's surprise who had used cryptocurrency for these illegal things thinking that they were preventing investigators from following the money when in fact this this thing the blockchain that underpins every bitcoin transaction actually if you can kind of crack its code allows you to follow the money in with more fidelity more transparency than even the traditional finance system that is the kind of 180 reveal that inspired me to write this book you know early on uh, you bring in a character who uh, is a really important to your book and and the way you describe his job is i can absolutely see the tv uh series pitch irsci <laughs> I mean, I, Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigations. The man's name is Tigran Gambarian. And one of the things I think you do incredibly well in this book, it's a very complicated narrative. And you tell lots of stories. You have lots of characters. Just really compelling. You do a, a great job. Talk about meeting Tigran and Begin your investigation. This is a, an investigation that must have taken you years. Well, you know, I came across Bitcoin in 2011. And as I just said, I kind of got it completely wrong. I, I thought that this was untraceable digital cash. And I started covering it at the time. And I got like kind of obsessed with the dark web black markets, um, you know, covered the Silk Road dark web market for drugs that traded in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in Bitcoins ultimately before it was taken down um, in this big law enforcement sting in 2013. And it was around that time that I met Tigran, actually, who was, as you say, an IRS CI, an IRS criminal investigations agent. This is like a kind of very, I think, um, under underappreciated, sort of not even known part of the federal government. Like this is a kind of crime fighting agency within the IRS. These are accountants with guns, basically, who can like audit you and knock down your door and, and arrest you. Um, I don't think IRS CI gets a lot of credit, um, but kind of figures that the, the Tigran, this IRS CI agent, was one of the first to look at Bitcoin and think, you know, as a forensic accountant, I bet that I can crack this. I bet, you know, it seems to me like this blockchain thing is a list of every single Bitcoin transaction ever copied out to thousands of computers around the world, which is which is exactly what it is. It just happens to be, uh, a, you know, a, a list of every transaction between these long garbled addresses that aren't supposed to reveal anything about someone's identity. But you know, for a forensic accountant or a computer scientist, you could start you can start to find patterns in that, which is what Tigran did, and he started to realize that you can actually trace, you know, these these flows of money from one address to the next to the next. And sometimes if you have identifying information on the addresses at, at the beginning and end of those chains of transactions, you can follow the money all the way to, you know, somebody's identity to prove that they committed a crime, which actually, you know, the very first case in which he did this, um, if I can spoil like some, one of the mystery, you know, the mysteries in the book a little bit uh, is that he identified two corrupt federal agents, one at DEA and one at secret service, who had been involved in this in this Silk Road dark web market takedown and had been enriching themselves with the Silk Road's bitcoins in some one case stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bitcoins and in another case actually selling law enforcement information back to the kingpin of the Silk Road as a kind of mole inside the DEA and that was the first case that Tigran pulled off um, where law enforcement used cryptocurrency tracing to identify and indict someone both those those agents those two 
kind of dirty agents went to prison for years. Speaking of characters, um, one of the guys that I really loved as a character was DPR, Dread Pirate Roberts. I guess this is taken from um, the uh, motion picture. Uh, what is it? A Princess Bride, yeah. Princess Bride, right. And he was a cypherpunk, and he was a, a guy who entered this arena philosophy first, which was freedom of, from identity for everything. Bitcoin is untraceable. We will promote all these um, kind of transactions. And he also, unfortunately, Silk Road kind of became involved with a lot of unsavory stuff too. I mean, more unsavory than drug transactions. Talk about this uh, character and how his philosophy led him to success and then to failure. Well, the, as you say, the Dread Pirate Roberts was the, the head honcho of the Silk Road, the creator of this first ever dark web market for all kinds of black market contrabands, all sold for Bitcoin. And it really seemed like Bitcoin was serving its purpose on the Silk Road, like making it possible to transact you know, in millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, ultimately, of all kinds of narcotics, mostly. Um, but as you say, you know, eventually, um, the Dread Pirate Roberts was kind of um, coaxed uh, into um, trying to commission the killing of um, uh, some, some of his enemies, one person who he believed was a, a an employee who had turned on him. And then ultimately, you know, somebody who thought was scamming him. Um, so, uh, you know, he was not actually so eventually I should skip to the ending here. Um, it was revealed that the Dread Pirate Roberts was Ross Ulbricht, this 29 year old guy, this Texan living in San Francisco, who was a kind of um, I mean, I would say a true, truly principled radical libertarian cypherpunk who thought that he could, you know, use these these cryptographic anonymity tools and cryptocurrency to um, usher in this world where the federal government, where the government cannot control what you buy and sell and put in your body. But I do think that the Silk Road became a kind of corrupted experiment. Ross Ulbricht was not ultimately charged with with any of those, you know, attempted murders in his in his trial. But he was convicted of, you know, of vast amounts of narcotics trafficking and this kind of conspiracy charge, um, what's known as the, the Kingpin statute and is now serving multiple life sentences in prison. Um, he's been already in prison for more than 10 years. And uh, I think it's important to note that the Silk Road was online for two and a half years, did hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions, and was not actually ever taken down through cryptocurrency tracing. He made, Ross Ulbricht made some very simple mistakes um, that sort of led to his his Gmail address in a forum post where he was trying to drum up interest in the Silk Road early on. He tried to delete this email address, but it was copied in, you know, uh, into somebody's response. Um, an IRS criminal investigator found that post, not Tigran, a different guy. Um, uh, and and, uh, and that is what led this to Russell Burke's identity and ultimately allowed the Silk Road to be taken down. But it still seemed even then in late 2013, you know, that the Silk Road had remained online for two and a half years and, it, and nobody's transactions were traced. It still seemed at that point that Bitcoin was untraceable. It was only actually in the investigation of those two federal agents who had been uh, who had been themselves investigating the Silk Road, that it was proven that cryptocurrency could be traceable in the work of Tigran and Gambarian. And that was what kind of launched this new era where this untraceable currency suddenly turned out to be the opposite and the lights were turned out, turned on, on, you know, this entirely, you know, dark environment, the dark web, uh, exposing all kinds of criminal syndicates um, whose money suddenly could be traced to their identities. And that that was the beginning of this kind of golden era of cryptocurrency tracing as a law enforcement investigative technique that is really what the book is about. This technique was not discovered by law enforcement. It was discovered by academia. Tell us about uh, Michael John, who is such a, another really great, engaging character. I have to say that one of the things I like about this book is just the way you take the characters through their arcs, and, and it's really masterfully done. It's like a woven tapestry. 
Well, thank you so much. I mean, um, Sarah is a, is a wonderful character, a wonderful person, really. You know, it's, uh, she's she exists in the real world as well. And you know, she is so so. T. Green Gambarian, this IRS criminal investigator, um, kind of hand traced um, the investigations of these two corrupt agents to identify them. But Sarah Mickeljohn was this graduate researcher at the University of California at San Diego, who was the first to really look at the blockchain even before that case and say, you know, I think I can find patterns in this as a computer scientist that can be used, um, you know, at scale to identify people who think that they are anonymous. And she started to come up with, uh, well, a few a kind of whole, whole grab bag of techniques, some of which are, are known as clustering, like ways to show that these these Bitcoin addresses, which seemed to be, you know, totally meaningless to have no identifying information in them, that you could find tricks to show that like, um, clusters of these addresses, dozens or sometimes thousands of them all belong to one person or one service or one dark web black market, which is what she did, you know, using kind of um, sort of logical tricks that when when all the money, for instance, is pooled together, you can see in like what she called them, you know, what is known as a multi input transaction, that somebody would like pull together all the funds from lots of addresses at once. And when they did that, they would prove sort of accidentally, that they controlled all of those addresses. And then you could, you know, look across those multi-input transactions to build these clusters of identities. And then very often those people would would take that money and cash it out at a cryptocurrency exchange. And there were, you know, by 2013, there were a growing number of these. And many of them followed US laws that were, you know, had these know your customer requirements and they collected people's identifying information uh, at the at the point where they were cashing out their bitcoins for dollars or euros or yen or whatever, and then you could send a subpoena to those exchanges and get somebody's you know identifying documents and really prove their identity. Sarah Mickeljohn was the first one to show that that was possible. She also kind of showed tricks for like creating these you know to, to show how the money moved from one hop to the next to the next until it hit one of those exchanges that could be sent a subpoena, and that is you know her paper on this. Um, along with her co-authors was the one that kind of cracked it open and then allowed this whole industry actually of cryptocurrency tracing companies to be, you know, to come to, to fruition, which is uh, the first of which was this company Chainalysis, um, which is kind of a main character itself in the book, this cryptocurrency tracing startup that became a kind of super weapon in the hands of law enforcement. Well, you know, one of the things it's somewhat cliche these days, for interviewers to talk about, you know, towns or companies as characters, but there are lots of non-human characters <laughs> in this book. I mean, I, I like to just talk a little bit about Bitcoin itself is a big character in this book. It's like, you know, a mystery man who, who it turns out when he takes off his overcoat, has you know his name spray painted on all over himself he's a man the illustrated man covered with his own name well yeah i mean bitcoin you know it it, it is in some senses as you say like this mysterious character itself it was created by satoshi nakamoto uh, a person or a team of people we don't know you know he she they um their identity they have you know uh, but satoshi nakamoto in the in their first email to a cryptography mailing list introducing Bitcoin wrote among the features of this cryptocurrency, which is truly a brilliant invention. There's no arguing with that. The fact that it it works, that it allows people to exchange money across the globe with no intermediary at all. It is, it is still, I think, in many ways, the closest thing to like the invention of a digital cash. Satoshi Nakamoto also wrote, though, in this list of features that Bitcoin, you know, the participants can be anonymous when they use the Bitcoin network. It turns out that the only person who has actually pulled that off almost is Satoshi Nakamoto himself or herself or themselves. They have remained anonymous, um, mostly because they they have never actually cashed out any of their million bitcoins or so. They're, you know, by whoever they are, they're like one of the richest people in the world, but they've never liquidated any of that money or spent it. And that has made it possible for them to remain anonymous. And then it turns out that for almost anyone else using Bitcoin, it's extremely difficult to actually buy or uh, anything with it or cash it out for regular currency without revealing who you are, without leaving fingerprints that IRS CI or other investigators can use to follow them to your identity. And that has made it, I would argue, almost like, I don't know if it's a, 
uh, I was probably an inadvertent, but nonetheless a trap for many of its users who thought that they were private, and in particular, all sorts of cyber criminals using this for drug dealing, money laundering, ultimately, as I get into near closer to the end of the book, a, a massive conspiracy to you know exploit children, um, you know, in a, in a massive uh, child sexual abuse materials video network. You talked about uh, chain analysis. This was this company was founded by two very smart men who met, you know, a few times. Uh, talk about the people behind the chain analysis, uh, particularly Marco, Michael Grunger, who plays a part not just in understanding how to turn Bitcoin data into useful evidence, but also he helps, he participates in some of these takedowns as well. Well, Michael Groninger is, is you know, a really unlikely um, figure to have become such an important kind of detective in these crypto follow the money investigations. He is a Bitcoin fan, a Bitcoin advocate himself, but it's just never look, you know, for, he is a a brilliant computer scientist. He had worked at, at CERN um, in in Switzerland prior to um, founding Chainalysis. But he and he looked at the blockchain and thought, like you know, anonymity, privacy is just not actually a feature of this cryptocurrency. And he and he's become quite controversial in the cryptocurrency world in part because you know he's seen as having kind of helped to de de anonymize tons of of cryptocurrency users. I mean, some people describe this as warrantless surveillance of people's financial dealings, you know, but he would argue, no, it's the data has always been out there for whoever can just parse it and analyze it. And, and he was the one who took Sarah Micklejohn's findings in that research paper, and then kind of added some of his own, of course, he built some of his own tricks. And then he, he um, integrated all of this into an automated tool that could basically scour the entire blockchain and find patterns and start to follow the money and identify people. This, this tool is known as Reactor. And then, he, you know, he, he initially started selling that to cryptocurrency exchanges. as just a better way to kind of know their customers. But he soon found that people like Tigran Gambarian were very interested in this. And in fact, were are now, I would say, um, some of his biggest customers. I mean, Chainalysis sells its tools to all sorts of law enforcement agencies around the world. And it has been used to spring this trap on cryptocurrency users um, who thought that they could use Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies privately. And instead, uh, it turns out that they were operating in a in a way that has created uh, traces that can be followed to identify them. Even years later, there is no way to even change or erase or alter uh, the tracks that you've left in the blockchain, even once you realize that they can be found. There's nothing you can do about it. That's that evidence is still sitting out there ready to, to excavate years later. So this has been an absolute bonanza for three letter agencies to unmask people. You know, I remember back in the early 2000s reading a novel by Charles Strauss and it began with what at the time seemed like this really absurd idea that a bunch of orcs march into a bank with a dragon and rob the bank. This is all a virtual bank. And they empty it out. And nobody can figure it out. And, and these hackers have to go in and try to figure out how this, how all these virtual characters did this. That essentially happens in this book with the Mount Gox robbery. And I, I once again, I was just amazed that to see science fiction turn up as science fact and really compelling reading talk about the Mount Gox robbery and the import that finding those the stolen money plays in the bigger picture of Bitcoin's transition from um, something that is uh, from a cryptocurrency to a transparent currency. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the Mount Gox case, as you're saying, is kind of... Um in some ways like the you know the founding case for chainalysis but also for this this new cryptocurrency tracing industry um so even before michael groniger met tigran gambarian and started you know selling this tool to the irs and to law enforcement um, he basically created chainalysis to take on this mystery of 
who had stolen half a billion dollars worth of, of cryptocurrency of Bitcoin from Mt. Gox, this first ever Bitcoin exchange. Uh, and at first, you know, people at the time, this was, this was in 2014, really, um, people thought that perhaps the, the staff of Mt. Gox had embezzled this money, or maybe the CEO, Mark Carpellis, had taken, you know, this half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. But um, Michael Groninger took on this case as a kind of, I don't know, almost like a private dick, you know, like in this classic sense. He he built Chainalysis and built this tool reactor for himself to use to try to trace this stolen, these stolen funds. And he showed uh, by following them across the blockchain on behalf of Mt. Gox's uh, bankruptcy trustees, basically, he was working for them pro bono, um, that the money had flowed not to Mark Carpellis or to the Mt. Gox staff, but to this other exchange that uh, was known as BTCE and was this extremely mysterious kind of black hole on the blockchain. Uh, nobody knew where BTCE was located or you know where it was run, who had founded it. It would turn out that it was run by a bunch of Russians. And not only had these Russians created BTCE, but they had stolen this, 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 this sum of money from Mt. Gox. And then it was such a large pile of loot that they had actually had to create their own exchange, BTCE, just as a means to try to liquidate this vast you know, amount of profit. Like this is almost like a mafia organization that has to create a Wall Street trading floor as a front company to try to launder all of their, you know, their stolen proceeds. Like they, um, they needed to create their own exchange just to liquidate this, this half billion dollars. And then BTCE had become a kind of, you know, um, a friendly exchange for all sorts of cyber criminals and had grown into its own business. And when Michael Groninger and actually Tigran and Gambarian working together, this is how they met, um, when, when they teamed up to solve that case, that was um, the first time that really the biggest kind of uh, criminal case, this unsolved criminal case in the cyber criminal world um, was was solved using cryptocurrency tracing. And that was, you know, I think the first time law enforcement as a whole kind of looked at this and thought, wow, like this is an incredibly powerful technique um, that we want to have in our tool belt as well. It turned out, by the way, that um, the that one of those three, the three Russians that um, was responsible for this, you know, Mt. Gox theft and BTCE laundering operation, um, Alexander Vinnick, he went on vacation in Greece and was arrested with Tigran Gambarian's coordination of, you know, a bunch of you know, Greek police. Um, two other Russians have now been indicted for this theft and laundering as well, but remain in Russia. And, um, you know, it re remains to be seen if they'll ever, you know, go somewhere where they can be extradited. You know, one of the, the things that was interesting, you write that, when Ross Ulrich, the dread pirate Roberts, was sentenced to two life sentences, the judge did so with the idea that they would kind of like discourage other people from following in this path. You're right, it had exactly the opposite effect. And that leads to the creation of something called Alpha Bay under the direction of a fellow who calls himself Alpha O2. This is an incredible story. I mean, and um, counterintuitively, it really uh, begins in Fresno, not a hotbed of tech, of tech. So talk about how this happened. Well, I mean, as, as you say, uh, Alpha Bay, well, in some sense, Alpha Bay is the centerpiece case of this book. It's like the... It's uh, it appeared in 2014. By 2017, it was not just the biggest dark web market, uh, you know, of the time, but the biggest dark web market in history. It would grow to be ten times the size of the Silk Road. It kind of uh, combined the Silk Road's sort of libertarian um, idea of selling drugs online with just like the traditional world of online cybercrime, like stolen data, hacked information, and you know, hacking tools for sale. And so it was this kind of like one-stop shop for all sorts of extremely profitable online crime, all, you know, transacting in cryptocurrency. And it was run by this kingpin named Alpha O2, 
who seemed savvier than the Dread Pirate Robert, than Ross Ulbricht. You know, it, it, by 2017, law enforcement agencies were starting to wonder if they would ever be able to get a lead on this guy. In fact, they worried that he was in Russia because he signed off his messages in Russian. And that might mean that he was beyond their reach and would stay untouchable forever. But as you say, a tip came into the Fresno office of the DEA. And it turned out um, that in Alpha Bay's very first days online, um, when you signed up for its user forums, you would receive a welcome email. And in that welcome email, there was this metadata um, that included an email address, pimpalex91 at hotmail.com. And um, when th this DEA agent who got this tip, and by the way, that, that, that problem was fixed within days. It really took uh, someone who had signed up very, very early on, on at Alpha Bay before anybody even knew what it was at, at, you know, at the scale that they would eventually, and then recorded that email and kept it for two and a half years and then gave it to the DEA. That's the way that this tip came in. But when the, the DEA agent and the a prosecutor in Fresno started to follow the breadcrumbs from that email address, they found this guy, Alexander Kaz, uh, who was this French Canadian man who had moved to Thailand uh, based on his, his Thai fiance's family's social media posts. They could see that he owned a Lamborghini Aventador and a villa in the south of Thailand in Phuket. And, you know, these and that, you know, he had kind of conspicuous wealth, although he claimed just to be a web developer. But it's important to note that even then, you know, although his email address had appeared in this welcome email for Alpha Bay briefly, they the prosecutor and this DEA agent worried that they that they were being set up, perhaps, and maybe because this this you know Canadian guy in Thailand was just the fall guy who was being framed as a patsy by the real Alpha O2, and they certainly didn't have enough to charge him, and it was only really cryptocurrency tracing that broke open this case and proved uh, to kind of spoil a bit of the ending here that he was, in fact, the kingpin of the biggest dark web market in history. I think one of the things I really like <clears throat> is your sense of pacing in this book. Uh, it, it's like really a, a extremely a page turner. And that's what I find really interesting is that it's a page turner with a boatload of information, you know, for the reader that most of us have never seen before. Talk about, as a writer, balancing, you know, the page-turning plot twists. And there are lots of plot twists in this Alpha Bay story that I don't want to spoil because I would just read them and go, my, my jaw would drop. Um, with, you know, the the also the more equally interesting, you know, revelations about you know bitcoin's power its anonymity how they traced it talk about balancing those threads as a writer yeah well the, you know thanks for asking it's you know i i do i work at wired and i feel like it's my job to translate like complicated technical things for normal people or you know like you know normal smart people uh, and uh and i am tempted always to like explain like look how cool this is the mechanics of this thing look how brilliantly this was designed but i try to you know to only i try to limit myself um you know it's like you have to be disciplined and i i, I try to only explain the things that are necessary to understand how cool a story really is to understand for instance the challenge of tracing alexander causes money i mean the the um that case for instance like you know eventually it, it leads to this extremely physical real world sting operation with like nine undercover agents on his block and the outskirts of Bangkok who all have to like play different undercover roles and and arrange to grab his his laptop out of his home logged into Alpha Bay um, because he used full disk encryption on it they had to grab it while it was open and unencrypted inside his home which means they had to trick him to come out anyway but to, but to get to that point to you know to get to the that climax of the story you have to explain to people how cryptocurrency tracing actually led to his home and proved that he was Alpha O2. And, and to do that, you have to explain the challenge of like how the blockchain was deciphered. And so much of the actual uh, action of these investigations, if you can call it that, actually takes place in that technical world. And you, you know, it's I, I take pride and I kind of like try to um to try to make that stuff as exciting and action-packed if you can call it that as the you know physical takedown of causing on his you know cul-de-sac in bangkok 
Well, that's actually one of the aspects of the book I like the most is making the ideas as compelling as the action. And one of the things, too, that kind of hangs over this book, one of the heavy, one of the background heavies, as it were, is capitalism itself, which deeply informs causes. I mean, this was a guy who looked at what... uh, Ulbrich had done, and he liked all those libertarian ideas up to the point so long as they made him money and kept him safe. So he used both the power of the cypherpunks and joined it with the kind of opposite, as it were, evil powers of capitalism, and he made sure he was protected, but also kept his focus on one thing, which is making a buckload of money. Right. I mean, the the takedown of the Silk Road, you know, as often happens in a kind of anarchistic world like that, you take out somebody, you know, who has some principles like the Dread Pirate Roberts, who saw himself as like the leader of this libertarian revolution and actually had rules on the Silk Road about you can only sell things, you know, for uh, you can only do victimless crimes on the Silk Road um, in theory. I mean, ultimately, as I said, there were, you know, he, he tried to have people killed, I think it's fair to say. But in service of trying to protect this community that he thought was really important for the future of mankind, as I think he truly believed. And then um, when you when you take out that guy, you create a power vacuum that's filled by somebody like Alpha O2, who is essentially the truly amoral, nihilistic, profit-seeking sociopath that's you know that you really fear will take control of a situation like this that's what uh alpha o2 that's what alexander cause truly was and he you know had a very dark private life as well that i get into in the book a lot of it was um bizarrely revealed through another of his alter egos he would post um under this other handle on a pickup artist forum called rouge v um, where he detailed his incredibly prolific sex life, the ways that he cheated on his fiancée and then wife, um, and believed in this kind of, I mean, the name Alpha O2 comes from his sort of alpha male ethos of <clears throat> of it all being about him and trying to keep women in their place and to, um, you know, uh, just kind of maximize his own sexual efficiency as he just, treated women like, you know, objects of conquest um, in a truly uh, gross and, um, as I said, I think like kind of sociopathic way that that's who ran Alphabet. And that is, you know, he, so you can see that like the, the, the taking out a sort of um, what was at least believed by its users and its creator to be a, 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 an experiment in a new kind of online you know, anarchistic ethics just made room for a true criminal operation. A true criminal, but also a man who, if you met him, you'd think, that guy's kind of a dweeb. (laughs) (laughs) That's the the thing. I mean, you know, uh, despite, you know, I think in part driven um, um, by his sort of true nerdy self, that is what led, I think, caused to, um, you know, try to, to play out this role of the alpha male in Bangkok where he could throw around his money and drive his Lamborghini around him and impress women, you know, um, but it, it speaks to me to, and in fact, this is a kind of theme of the book, the ways that the internet and a, a particularly like this idea of anonymity online can kind of splinter people's persona. They, you know, these, the same federal agents who were investigating the Silk Road when they encountered what they thought was truly anonymous money, became criminals themselves like they were tempted into becoming someone else on the dark web and and carrying out criminal acts and and trying to get away with with stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars of bitcoin when um this you know kind of innocent libertarian seeming guy ross ulbricht encountered the dark web he became himself a kind of drug kingpin of the silk road and when um alexander cause encountered the dark web and saw the opportunity there with cryptocurrency that he believed himself too was untraceable uh he became a kind of monster online as even as he kind of seemed like this harmless teddy bear nerd in the real world now uh there are some fantastic twists in his story that i don't want to give away but i i wonder 
you as a writer, how far were you into this project as a book to experience these twists? I mean, this sounds like something that if you're writing the book, you know, you're wondering, when is this guy's story going to be over? Well, it's, you know, I have to say, like, I, um, I only learned Kaz's name when uh, he had already been taken down by law enforcement and actually was, you know, I, I guess uh, to, uh, I think I need to reveal here that he um, was found dead in a Thai jail cell after his arrest. Uh, you know, whether uh, that was a murder or a suicide, I'll leave people to decide for themselves when they've read, you know, what I have said about him in what I was able to find in the book, which I don't think was honestly conclusive on that point. Um, but no, I, I only learned about Kaz's story in retrospect. Um, that all of this occurred in 2017. And um, I think one of the, you know, privileges that I have working at Wired, a monthly magazine, is that I've always tried to like go back and tell old untold stories. So I can go back a few years when people are finally ready to talk about the details of these things and hear firsthand what it was like to get that tip in the Fresno office and to start to follow the money. And then uh, what it was like for the DEA agent in Thailand to first learn Kaz's identity and, 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 and enlist the help of the Thai police to track his Lamborghini and his Porsche and follow him through Bangkok traffic and try to arrange this thing operation stuff that had already happened years earlier, but that stories that had never been told before. So, you know, I, um, I knew that there was going to be a crazy story around Alpha Bay just because of the sheer size of it. Uh, but I too was shocked to learn just like how kind of, um, I don't know how, how just how insane it really was like the scale of it, the, the twists and turns of the action, um, it was certainly a better story than I could have possibly imagined with a, but with a tragic outcome, I think it's important to say, I mean, I don't want to make light of the fact that cause cause died in jail. We are now in a new era and there are two things that, you know, are a big deal. In the first place, we have Sam Bankman with FTX taken down so Bitcoin has really entered the mainstream with this because this is all over all the news services. You, you'd be hard-pressed to miss it. So I'd like you to talk about that. And also what we have coming online now is the increased presence of what are called artificial intelligence programs. And well, I don't think they're, they, they aren't, uh, it's not like Skynet or the Terminator. They're just like a, a, a pair it's like a pair of scissors with which you could cut every wire in the world that they give you that kind of power talk about how the increased public knowledge of bitcoin and there are also many people who are out there thinking i'm going to make it big with bitcoin no you're not <laughs> but, uh, unless you're very lucky um and, and how the increased public knowledge of Bitcoin combined with the power provided by AI uh, is, I have to say, it must be creating some kind of like new environment that seems even crazier and more dangerous than what's going on in your book, which seems super crazy and super dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it is bizarre to me having, you know, first written about Bitcoin in 2011, I, you know, when Bitcoin was worth $1. Um, that was when I wrote the first piece about Bitcoin in, in Forbes magazine. Um, you know, now to see, well, to see the people, you know, crashes to $25,000 and people think that that's like a, you know, uh, a low price. And now it's starting to, to rise again. I'm kind of agnostic on like whether Bitcoin is a good investment or not, but it's still you know, to, to, I don't even know how many thousands of percent increase that is since I started looking at, at Bitcoin. But to, on your point about FTX, I mean, um, FTX, I do feel like is this moment when a lot of people took notice of, uh, of like the, the, you know, the incredible amount of illicit action that is possible um, with cryptocurrency. But it's, to me, it's not like the same kind of crime story for the most part as the, that I tell in the book. I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried is a sort of like Elizabeth Holmes, um, 
Lehman Brothers hybrid, you know, like a, you know, who I think now is a convicted fraudster, it's fair to say, but it was a kind of typical financial um, fraud or Ponzi scheme that just happened to be carried out with cryptocurrency. The part of it, though, that is like very relevant to um, the story that I told in the book is that on the day that FTX declared bankruptcy, I'm not sure most people know this, somebody stole more than $400 million worth of cryptocurrency out of FTX. And a, a lot of people, just as with Mt. Gox, I mean, this is like history repeating itself, um, have believed that that must have been Sam Bankman-Fried or the FTX staff taking this money because they, you know, as they lost everything, essentially, they were trying to make themselves whole, maybe. But cryptocurrency tracing is already starting to reveal that no, it does seem like these were cyber criminals who seized, who had probably been inside FTX's network for a long time and saw that uh, because of the bankruptcy, the money was about to move and they seized on their chance to take as much as they could. And some of that money has now been moved through money laundering services. You can see this on the blockchain um, that are used by, typically by Russian cyber criminals. So it seems like maybe history has completely repeated itself here. And that once again, a massive heist has been pulled off and part of FTX's woes uh, financially were not due to as Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, fraud, but but rather to traditional you know cyber criminals just pulling off a huge theft here. Um, so you know once again it's it's the blockchain and it's cryptocurrency tracing that is revealing that, and that will probably sooner or later reveal to us who the culprit was of that crime, just as it did with Mt. Gox you know a decade ago. Um, so, you know, th that's just to say that like this, this age of cryptocurrency tracing goes on and is still revealing like the true culprits in, in this now more mainstream than ever kind of environment. The orcs behind the, the faces behind the orcs as it were. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, on, your, on AI, you know, that's another good question. I, you know, it's what I, uh, I don't. I think that any cryptocurrency tracing firms are yet advertising that they're using artificial intelligence to analyze the blockchain. Maybe they are. I haven't seen it like used in a in a high profile way still. But I do know that it's inevitable. I mean, the cryptocurrency tracing industry, you know, which began with Chainalysis, which is now nearly a nine billion dollar company, nine billion dollar startup, um, is now you know this this whole collection of companies that are competing for the best cryptocurrency tracing techniques and the smartest tracing minds, you know, people who are finding vulnerabilities in blockchains and new ways to follow the money. There's no doubt that they will use AI at some point to find these patterns automatically too. To what you just said, Chainalysis, now a $9 billion company, we see the beginning of chain analysis and you guys having coffee in San Francisco. And I think that's a fantastic story that this book tells. And so talk, talk about, you know, you know, the extremely small beginnings and gigantic endings that, that this book uh, details and also you know your discovery you are one of the characters in this there's one one really wonderful point where you realize that somebody had been looking at uh test transactions that you had made well, that's right well um right i mean like it's always i i whenever i can of course i love to tell a story of something that it, that grows to a massive scale but 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 to tell it from its, you know, humble beginnings to like get there at the very beginning. And I was lucky enough with Bitcoin to kind of be there like about as early as any journalist, you know, um, in 2011. Bitcoin uh, was, of course, created in, in earlier, but years earlier, but um, didn't have essentially much value until 2011 or so. So that's when I took notice of it. And yeah, I, I as you say, like when, when I wrote my first piece um, about Bitcoin, I I... I guess that, at that point, I tried to buy about $40 worth of Bitcoins, um, which would have been 40 Bitcoins. Um, but there was a bug in Mt. Gox and my transaction didn't go through. And I only, I don't know, I tried not to think too much of today about how much those 40 Bitcoins would be worth, but certainly more than I've ever made in my life as a, as a journalist. Um, but then a couple of years later, the Silk Road had popped up 
And at that point, I I did actually in my obsession with the Silk Road and its founder, the Dread Pirate Roberts, I did do some test transactions. I guess it's legal to admit this now. The statute of limitations is is up. That I bought, you know, um, some small amounts of marijuana from the Silk Road and a couple of competing dark web markets just to see what that was like. And I did a piece for for Forbes, you know, just like uh, it was actually the kind of sidebar to an interview I did with the Dread Pirate Roberts. Um, about what it's like to buy marijuana from three dark web drug markets. And then when Sarah Mickeljohn came out with her paper about tracing Bitcoins, revealing that that was possible, I said, well, why don't you see if you can find my drug deals uh, on the blockchain? And sure enough, she wrote me back like, um, you know, I think just a matter of days later and had completely identified every transaction that I'd made, essentially revealing that I had done an illegal drug deal, you know, in full public view on the internet that can never be erased from the blockchain. That's actually another kind of background bit in the this book on the on the internet. Everything is forever. Well, you know, that is uh, that certainly is a theme of the book as well. That that actually, you know, even cryptocurrency aside, both the Dread Pirate Roberts and Alpha O2 made little slip ups that helped to reveal their identities that were recorded just because the internet, as you say, like always leaves a trail of breadcrumbs. Um, you know, it is like, I think in some ways, cryptocurrency and blockchains are kind of like a little parable about this. Like, we once believed that on the internet, nobody knew you were a dog. Now, we know that it's the opposite. You know, we once believed that cryptocurrency was untraceable, and that is like uh, the the most ironic um, twist. That that is the the fullest one eighty reveal that Bitcoin is the most traceable kind of currency, um, and that the blockchain is fully transparent. So in some ways, the blockchain is just the kind of the most like distilled and uh, powerful example of this kind of allegory of the ways that we misunderstand the privacy properties of technology. New book by Andy Greenberg is Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. Thank you for joining me, Andy. Thank you so much, Rick. It's always fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.